Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ethics in football, we dug ourselves a hole. Is it right or wrong to smash a player's skull? Hey, no easy answers, there's nothing I know. Now it's time to play that banjo. Football's our favorite, but won't you please take note? We see it's got some problems, we're all in the same boat. Reckoning with football's past, I reckon you better paddle fast. Boys, I think I hear that banjo. Welcome to Banjo College Football, the world's most ethical college football podcast. As always, part of the Armchair Media Network, I'm your host, Kevin Paul. Uh, joined, as always, uh, by my co-conspirators this week, Andrew Stevens and Brian Scott Rippey. Folks, I, I just want to get right into it. So over this past weekend, um, you know, Thursday night, we, we heard some rumblings, but, you know, a lot of us went to sleep before uh, any news could break. Friday, um, you know, it, it became pretty clear that something terrible to some, hilarious to others on the horizon. And then Saturday was just all jokes, the funniest thing that's ever happened uh, <laughs> to me personally. Um, of course, I'm talking about the Deep South's oldest rivalry and Georgia shooting <laughs> the dog shit out of Auburn. Uh, Andrew, tell us about your experience uh, dragging Gus Malzahn's corpse across the field. So as someone who typically has experienced nothing but sports pain, KP just cracked the claw right into the mic. I like it. Um, nice. I was mentally preparing for the following scenario to happen. Um, I was going to go and um, hang out in Savannah, Georgia with a friend for the Georgia-Florida game. It is on Sunday, uh, I believe November 7th, which is five days after the presidential election. Um, and so I was definitely preparing for Florida to be driving to go up, I don't know, uh, 41 to 19 on Georgia. And I get a New York Times alert that says Donald Trump has ordered uh, the courts to stop counting mail-in ballots, therefore securing the presidency. But there might be something afoot here, folks, because there is now a chance in the world where I receive a text on October 17th that as Georgia is going down to put the nail in the coffin of the University of Alabama, I could receive a text that says Donald Trump has died of the coronavirus. And at that moment, I would either immediately kill myself or just float into heaven as a higher being. I don't know which one would happen, but if it's taken into my own hands, I'm going out on top, baby. So can I ask a question? Because 
as KP very artfully uh, threw the curveball to start this episode, we recorded what I guess that was last Thursday, and then that news came out Friday. And I'm sitting there at work pretending to work, and I'm looking through Twitter, and it's like everyone's talking about like, like how, how should I phrase this? Just how like where does the world go from here now that the president has coronavirus? And I might have been the only one. This sounds this sounds insane, but I might I was kind of looking around and like, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, the guy's been going to rallies and not wearing any masks. Like, why are we acting like this is some earth shattering occurrence that the president caught COVID nineteen? Like, I, I, I'm honestly surprised that it had not made its way with the attitude towards like protocols and all that. It not had made its way through the to the White House sooner, and I guess it got a little more real because he went to the hospital. All that would seem like more of a precautionary measure, but I, it, it, with the all the bad, crazy shit that's gone on in 2020. I was shocked at how just like taken aback everyone was. I get it's the president, but I was like, if you're making me count on two, one or two hands, like the crazy shit that's happened this year, this might go on the second hand at this point. Well, so uh, I guess murder hornets on the first hand, but I, I generally operate by a principle that uh, no bad things happen to bad people outside of like Andrew Breitbart dropping dead at age like 43, nothing bad happens to bad people. And so from the perspective of like, how old is Henry Kissinger again? Like yeah, 106. Dude, that guy is on his <laughs> 37th heart. I'm, oh my <laughs> fucking God, that guy's going to outlive me. But the, the, I think that, so I think there's two ways to look at it, Ribby, or kind of twofold, where one, it shouldn't be surprising that he has gotten it based on the way he operates. And if you're someone that thinks this isn't a big deal and you travel as regularly as he does, it, it really is shocking that he hasn't gotten it up to this point. But I think the big deal is because, I don't know if you saw that video last night, the motherfucker cannot breathe. And like a 74-year-old, I saw the statistic that if you are over 65 and obese, which he is 74 and probably more than just a little bit obese, you have a 31% mortality rate if you catch this. So as someone eloquently put on Twitter, this motherfucker is a Russell Westbrook three-pointer from just, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I... I pretty much agree with Andrew. It's not shocking that he got it. It's just that, you know, Thursday night, you know, we got a shams bomb that um, Donald Trump. We need to talk about how he did that, though, but please continue. That Donald and Melania Trump contracted the novel coronavirus. Shams broke that? Yeah. No, 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 no. Someone caught a screenshot of it. Shams got it, like, 15 or 18 seconds later. And so I got on this whole thread of, like, I really think that like Shams was thinking that this was a possibility, had a tweet ready when it went live. He was the first person there. And so they have the exact same, like whatever it was, 9.04 PM or whatever, but one was like 15 or 20 seconds before the other one. So this motherfucker is just coasting on the wake of breaking news valor. <laughs> but you know, when you, when you're in the trenches, like Shams was, you know, when you got it out the mud, like he did, you, you get, you get a couple of those in a career. Yeah, you will. You will. You know, Props to him. But you know, where you at, Woj? When Shams broke that uh, Thursday night, and I was just like, "Oh, <laughs> of course he got it. Sure." And I, I found out Friday morning when I woke up. But you know, Friday by three or four p.m., I mean, he's getting airlifted to Walter Reed, and you see reports of 
his children are distraught. Like Don Jr. was, you know, about to jump off of a bridge because he was so distraught at everything going on. And then Saturday, we're just getting reports that he might die in the hospital. So that's the chaotic thing. It just all escalated so quickly to where, yeah, he tested positive on Thursday night. But I mean, Sure, it's like your pasta's only boiled at a certain point, but it, it has to be boiling before that. This was just all – it was all happening, but it's like your pasta got boiled in four minutes. You're just like, oh, holy shit, this is, this is all happening right now. And I'm, I'm sure that by this point, uh, I think this is Banjo 13, that I have driven away any – any listeners that Rippy may have brought in from the middle of Mississippi, but I'm just going to go out and say uh, this fucking rules. Um, I'm not going to say the D word and that I hope it, but this fucking rules. No disrespect to Tupelo. No disrespect to Tupelo. But I, yeah, no I, disrespect I, to Tupelo. <laughs> disrespect to the president. Um, the uh, the uh, now I lost my train of thought. Wait, what's with Tupelo? What is y'all saying with Tupelo? Andrew's just. Tup- Tupelo's in the middle of Mississippi, kinda ish, right? Yeah, it is. I didn't okay. know. I just thought it was like a nice little quaint town. Good place. Love Tupelo. Um, <laughs> I didn't know if that was some joke that I was missing. I did appreciate though the the Twitter video last night that the president put out talking about like how like he beat it or whatever, and then at the end just kind of casually throws in there that I might be immune. Who knows? So just casually <laughs> tossing that out there. Kind of, you know, three days after he called that a fundamental misunderstanding of a word, but (laughs) somehow I don't think he can uh, out out market uh, the coronavirus out of his body. I don't think he can (laughs) brand the coronavirus out of his body. I I was watching that video and it had already gone in so many directions and I just was not ready for the last haymaker that was. Yeah, and I'm probably immune. I don't know. Man, he was sucking. Wind. I mean, he would like when in high school when they made us run the two laps around the track, and my fat ass was, yeah, I definitely want to play on the basketball team. That that is exactly what that dude looked like standing still last night. Yeah, it's it just like he took the mask off, which I mean, maybe the worst possible thing he could do from a PR perspective in two different ways. Number one, dude, you literally still have the coronavirus. Your doctors refuse to say when your last negative test was. I'm not sure that's a green light to take off your mask in public. And second, that mask is the only thing stopping people from figuring out that you can't breathe right on your own right now. So Andrew's playing mask off. I don't know if you guys can hear it. Um, uh, if, if you get more than 10 seconds, I think future like legally gets to kill us or something. So. Yeah. I think that's how it works. I think that's what the courts would say. Yeah, please don't come out there at Atlantic Records. But yeah, just a, a wonderful weekend, not just from a football perspective, but it, it's probably the most fun I've had online over the weekend in a long, long time. I mean, we were hooting and we were hollering. At the same time. At the same damn time. Yeah, but I, I will say the football portion of the weekend um, – it made me rather excited, and I, I think that we want to leave the Gus Malzahn talk a little bit till the or the, the deep South's oldest rivalry talk till the end because I, Rippy, if if this is okay with you, KP and I and it, via text Sunday morning, uh, we just dug into Gus Malzahn. He's a he. The fact that he hasn't been fired up to this point is really like an indictment to Auburn and their fanhood and and really anything about that university, but. Um, 
the Rebels this weekend, the lane train, I do kind of want to start there because um, I am known to uh, succumb to recency bias uh, harder than maybe anyone. Yes. But they look good. The offense is sick. The defense is horrendous. But, you know, and I saw a tweet, and I I can't take credit for this um, because it was not my original thought. It was Jeffrey Wright, who used to cover Ole Miss, is now a radio guy in Memphis. Good dude. (laughs) He had a great second part of this tweet because Hugh Freeze regularly DMs this guy. But he said, Lane Kiffin's defense is abhorrent and makes no excuses. That's the difference between a good coach and one who thinks he's good. Also, I welcome your Sunday morning DM, Hugh. It will go well with my coffee. But in uh, the the snark to Hugh Freeze aside, <laughs> it's a it's a fascinating point that Lane's like Ole Miss's defense has been awful. And a year after Mike Mac, I think it underscores how good of a defensive coordinator Mike McIntyre is. I mean, the man won at San Jose State. Does a lot with a little. That's kind of his thing. Maybe it's them just trying to implement a system knowing they're going to recruit better because Chris Partridge and DJ Durkin were brought in to recruit on a national level. But all of that to say, the offense is awesome. And it's almost like, I think I brought this up on a previous podcast, but they disconnect locally and nationally on what was actually happening with Ole Miss's quarterback situation. Bizarre. (laughs) And remains bizarre to this day. because, And I was one of the final corral stands to the point of people tuning me out podcast-wise last year I just didn't get the Plumlee thing and Corral is awesome and it's like almost you almost forgot that he was an Under Armour All-American I can tell you the people that I'm just mostly surrounded by um Plumlee is a god to Baton Rouge folk because for some reason his his name is John Rice Plumlee I mean uh, I mean (laughs) other than other than the obvious uh but no what he did or what he did to LSU last year is like mythical lore down here yeah, I I um I was talking with you know friend of the show Colin Brister a little bit over the off season, and just you know shooting the shit about you know Alabama, Ole Miss, and the SEC as a whole, and I was just like, so you know who's got an upper hand in the quarterback competition? And he just told me, yeah, th- th- there wasn't a competition. Corral was just the better quarterback, especially for a Lane Kiffin offense. And pretty much from like the first week on, Corral was better than the first scrimmage. And I think in a lot of ways, and granted the staff is still pretty unfamiliar with these guys, but I think just kind of confirmed it more so than giving him a leg up. He's awesome. He makes a lot of great throws. They're incorporating other guys not named Elijah Moore in the offense. They're a hell of a lot of fun to watch. It, it's 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 like 2016, 2017, but, or 2017, I guess I should say, but they score in the red zone. Like Phil Longo is not – you know, Phil Long, they run more than two routes. Like they don't chase grass or whatever the hell Phil Longo said in the red zone. But it, uh, honestly, all this does is underscore just what coaching malpractice it was that Rich Rodriguez and Matt Luke did to Matt Corral last year. I mean, you take him to SEC Media Days as a freshman and he gets tossed all the corncob questions about what it means to be here as a 19 year old, as if he's never talked to the media at that point before. And all that only to just have the plug pulled on him three games in because Plumlee kind of fits what Matt Luke wanted to do, and Matt Luke was a vastly overwhelmed coach running out of capital with his athletic department and his fan base. And honestly, it's getting to the point, like Ole Miss does not deserve Matt Corral. Why is Matt Corral still here? I would have been Audi 5000, to quote Step Brothers. I would have gone way the hell away from Oxford, gone to a normal offense to a place that I was appreciated, but for whatever reason chose to stuck around and is now whipping ass. And that second part of that is, Poor Kentucky's kicker, man. That's brutal. 
Oh, just missing an extra point in overtime may just be the single worst thing a kicker could do. Uh, like game-winning field goals, yeah, that sucks. But extra point in overtime, man, that's just – you can miss one in the first quarter and then no one's going to come back, you know, for your head if you lose the game 28-27. But if you miss it, if you miss it in OT – uh, just bef- just before we get off the Matt Corral point, I just have a feeling that he and Tyler Hero would be good friends. <laughs> <laughs> they have kind of the same like attitude with the way they go about things, and maybe that's what kind of there's probably a story there in the sense that like that's what got Corral through all of this is just the irrational confidence of I'm good. You know, in the Egg Bowl last year, amidst everyone remembers the debauchery that was the piss and miss. Where you know the high flag, the missed extra point, and all that shit. Yes. Well, you got to remember, into Arkansas because of it. Yeah, Ole Miss had a fourth and twenty-three from their own like fourteen-yard line in that game that could have ended the game, and they converted it because the uh, Rich Rodriguez called a play, and Matt Corral went to Braylon Sanders and said, "I don't give a shit what he called. Run this route. It's going to be." Yeah. And that's how they converted it. Like it's that kind of confidence that may have actually gotten him through all kind of these shitty times. Yeah, I think the um, anyone that is transferring for um, uh, or or decommitting or anything from a place like Florida uh, going into a situation like Ole Miss, you have to know a little bit about what you're getting into. I mean, maybe not maybe not a hundred percent, but like you have to understand that like all of the SEC is not built different, and especially not not like talking down. Oxford or Ole Miss, but really just talking down, like going into Matt Luke, knowing what that situation was, knowing how, I mean, if you're a starting quarterback or or a high level quarterback, I have to imagine you have a good idea of the leash of the head coach. Like if we do, he does. And so um, like he he had to go into this knowing that he was going to be there to stick around. It's a fascinating story too, because he's, to your point, he's getting knocked down because he's at Ole Miss because Mullen said, I don't want you. Like he, it was one of those classic coaching changes they dropped the quarterback to get their own guy. He said, I don't want you. So he's being dropped down from, you know, a, a program that's up here to one that's down here. And he was on a lot of options. And it created this strange marriage because they, in a lot of ways, needed each other. Luke needed a spark and some kind of big-time recruiting. Corral needed a place to play, only to have Luke kind of turn his back on him for some kid that runs real fast despite not being able to throw a pass. It's a fascinating story. And he's finally getting his due, which I'm happy to see because the kid's been through a lot of shit. In terms of on-field stuff, no, like, real-life drama. But in terms of, like, the pathway to production, he's dealt with a lot of shit. Man, who would ever hire Matt Luke after uh, his debauchery at Ole Miss? What program would have, you know, the self-disrespect to do that? Hey, that offensive line just washed Auburn. Just yeah. absolutely washed yeah. Auburn. But before we get into Deep South's Otis rivalry, um, Bama beat Texas A&M last week. I mean, it KP, was, it was this a is a program that no, no. No, I, I, I'm saying we don't have to discuss it. I just want to acknowledge it. Yeah, because it's the most boring program of all time. It pisses me the fuck. No one should get to just beat teams this badly. It's annoying as fucking shit. I'm sorry that you, Georgia doesn't, Andrew. I mean, we do, <laughs> but like, no one does like that. Like. Oh, God, when we're 37 years old and Nick Saban and Donald Trump are fucking each other in hell, oh, I'm going to send you so many annoying texts. It's going to be wonderful. If Saban's still winning the West at 37, I'd just probably give up on college – or 97. I would, Or when we're 37, I guess just to say, probably just give up on college football at that point. But tonight, Ole Miss obviously plays Alabama this week, so I had Brett Hudson of the Tuscaloosa News 
on the 247 podcast. And if you really want to kind of get into the, uh, even though quote unquote nobody cares, the angle for Alabama is one, they're going to sleepwalk through the West, right? I mean, everyone else is like, obviously, Ole Miss, Arkansas State, not there as programs yet, not anywhere close. Uh, LSU, I think, kind of sucks. I don't really know what AM is, but you saw that they're not that. And Auburn can't score with anybody. So, like, if there's one thing that keeps Alabama from, like, actually winning the whole thing this year, it's probably just the defense not making enough strides, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. Mac Jones seems more than competent. Yeah, um, the defense isn't, you know, obviously I don't know how many people have paired at this point already, but it's not going to be 2011 or 2012 ever again in terms of, you know, what we can do on the defense side of the ball. But uh, we've just built a team that can outscore people for the most part. I I mean, I think we can put up at least 24, 27 on basically anyone in the country, which if the defense is just doing all right that day, that might be enough. So who knows? The the interesting part of this, though, is the A&M side, right? Because they give Jimbo Fisher a shit pile of cash. And I get, like, you know, in the old days, you used to have – I say old days when we were kids, you used to have four years to build your program. And then year five was the prove it year. And then you're out of there or in some cases, three years and then year four. Yep. I get that we're all impatient now, but did they pay him $75 million to get the teeth kicked out of them by Alabama this badly with that many upperclassmen on the team? It's, in year, year, three? it's year three with a four year starter at quarterback. Exactly. Uh, he's 10 and eight in the sec. Uh, you know, obviously Alabama's a tough beat and, now, looking at the schedule, anyone would expect them to be one and one, but I don't think that one and one was like a 17 to 12 win over Vanderbilt, followed by a bloodletting in Tuscaloosa. I mean, I'll, I mean, Kevin Sumlin's started first three years were better than this. I understand he had a Heisman winner, but like, if you're talking about expectations from A&M fans, you just paid a guy $75 million guaranteed. And currently, uh, all we talk about is the future in the future because there's 10 years on the contract, but I mean, if you look back at it, Kevin Sumlin did better than this and then still fell off a cliff. So what's what's Jimbo about to do? And the soft factor is still there, right? Like the whole general storyline is that Sumlin and his programs are soft. And do you really look at A&M now and think that's a really hard-nosed football team? The only time I thought that was in year one when they played Clemson really close. And you're like, all right, these guys have some fight. Talent's not there yet. But after eviscerating Florida State as a program last week and basically shutting its doors on this podcast – if you go back to his Florida State days, is he washed? When's the last time he's coached a good, innovative team? Well, so I guess my only question is, like, how much of Jimbo Fisher's entire coaching success has been predicated on a Jeremy Pruitt hire and Jameis Winston? Like, like if those two things in tandem don't happen together, which don't result in the 2013 title, then, like, he is looked upon as like a very disappointing head coach. Yeah, and you got to in an incredible situation, right? It's not like he built anything from the ground up. No, no, no he was like the longest head coach in waiting I can ever remember. So it's it's funny because you you sort of have to give that sort of you have to give him credit for recruiting Jameis and also um, for hiring Jeremy Pruitt. Like those are decisions that he made and things that he accomplished, um, and also recruiting and coaching the 2013 team, but. It really just seems like he's he's the opposite of a taskmaster. And I, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but he puts all his eggs in this one basket, and when that goes well, you get the 2013 and to an extent the 2014 Florida State teams. But after that, it's like, oh, 
did my job here. And he basically stopped recruiting after 2015, which gave you the 2017 and on Florida State teams. And at AM, it's like, well, you can try harder in recruiting, but, you know, LSU, Bama, Auburn are all in your division. You got to compete with, you know, Arkansas didn't have the on field product, but, you know, they have Tyson money and they have Jerry Jones money. And, you know, then in the East, you've got to recruit against Georgia, Tennessee, and Florida. So it's just, he, he took a tougher and probably worse job when it probably would have been easier for him to just care about recruiting more at Florida State. I was about to say, as we mentioned last week, you talk about him not trying and recruiting at FSU those last years. You're still seeing the effects. Like, yes, Taggart probably didn't maximize what was, like, the amount of meat left on that bone from a recruiting perspective. But make no mistake about it, the reason Florida State still sucks, so we brought up the offensive line and that stat last week, that's still a Jimbo thing. They're not that far removed from that. Not at all. <laughs> no, I mean, like, less than 30 games. No, no, kids are playing right now that Jimbo at least exchanged text messages with in high school at yeah. Florida State. Yeah, Jimbo has dropped bags to current Florida State players. Yes. Before you guys eviscerate the whole uh, the whole Otis rivalry in the South thing, did anything else stand out this weekend? I didn't watch, admittedly, a snap of LSU Vandy. Um, but was anything else just, like, awe-inspiring? I- I watched the end of Oklahoma Iowa State, and it was very, it was very interesting to me because obviously the meme is what Lincoln Riley can't develop his own quarterback, and I think what Lincoln Riley's first year as offensive coordinator was Baker's first year as a starter at Oklahoma. So I don't think that's completely fair, but also you know Baker was a full time starter at Texas Tech beforehand. Jalen Hurts was an SEC Offensive Player of the Year. Kyler Murray was you know number one player in the country and had some success at A and M. Spencer Rattler doesn't have any success to fall back on. So it's just, for the first time, Lincoln Riley's quarterback just isn't comfortable in late-game situations, and it's showing. I mean, I didn't think they'd be one and two, but I knew they'd struggle. This is incredible. Oklahoma might be out of the Big 12 race completely after they play Texas this week. And not even like a knock on Spencer Rattler because I think that he's going to be really good and just from the limited stuff that I've seen from him. I think he's solid, but like they've – They've literally, I mean, I know Hertz wasn't a Heisman winner, but didn't he come in second? Um, Hertz? No, but was, I, I think he was like fifth in a year. They only invited three or something. Or like something. That. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Not, um, but like they've, they've essentially had, I mean, Heisman winner, Heisman winner, and I mean, I mean yes, yeah, finalist, second round pit. Like they have had probably a top three quarterback in the country to bail them out of like let's say you you replace any of those last three teams with the 20th best quarterback in the country they probably lose 10 games over those three years I mean they're already dropping one to the Kansas States or the Iowa States of the world but like they have so many just situations predicated on essentially hero ball from their quarterback the other take I had written down from this weekend is are we about to get to a point so, like, I watched a little bit of Missouri, Florida, I mean, Missouri, Tennessee, while sitting standing on a golf course on Saturday morning, and like Tennessee didn't particularly play great, but that was kind of just a methodical machine like win where you kind of sleepwalk your way to a game that really wasn't that close. And now, granted, I don't think Missouri's very good, but it appears very clear at this point that Jeremy Pruitt knows what he's doing. I think that would be fair to say. Well, how long that translates to, I don't know, but. With the way Stoops sneakily recruits at Kentucky, Kentucky should probably shouldn't be 0-2. They had terrible game management against Auburn. And, you know, probably were better than Ole Miss. I mean, they outgained them, were better on third down, pretty much did everything better except kind of finish a couple of drives off. But, like, 
I guess what I'm trying to get at is I don't necessarily buy Muschamp, but if Pruitt kind of becomes what some think his ceiling is, you have the pesky Mark Stoops who's built a great program at a basketball school. Are you about to see a shift in depth from the east to the west? I mean, I was going to bring this up earlier. Are, are not three of the four best teams in the SEC in the East this year? Two of the top three for sure. I would be shocked if we beat Tennessee by three touchdowns this week. I was about to say, it comes down, when you ask that question, it comes down to do you think Tennessee's better than LSU, A&M, or Auburn? I guess you could still throw in that group because, I mean, there's no shame in losing to Georgia. Granted, it looks so ugly. Like, I mean, two of the, I would say they're better than LSU and A&M. And I know Georgia has a and – There's no reason to say they're not based on the first two weeks. Yeah, I guess that's one of those, like, outside of pedigree, quote, unquote, whatever the fuck that means, even though, as we were about to talk about, Auburn really doesn't have any. Like, I, I really would be surprised if – with Tennessee, I mean, based on – Everything that has happened uh, in the past 10 years of us playing Tennessee, it gives me great pause and makes me very nervous. But I I would be surprised if LSU ends this season like, and we're saying that team is significantly better than Tennessee. I mean, it could end up being a toss up, but like, I think those are probably both somewhere in between the 10 and 20th best teams in the country. And, and at that point, it's just kind of nebulous. Yeah, I, I I think it's really interesting what's going on at Tennessee because, as we all know, Saban's got that record against his former assistants. But so many of his former assistants have just tried to create the 2008 through 2011 Alabama team. I have no idea what you're talking about. I know what you're saying because I just had this conversation an hour ago with Brett Hudson where he said he thought Kiffin might be the first assistant to beat Alabama just because he's trying to go about it differently. And I don't necessarily know if I buy that because Kirby has gotten damn close twice. I mean, we're not about how many minutes they've led in each of those games. Sorry to stick a dagger in the heart there, Stevens. But, like, I know where you're going is what I'm saying, KP. Yeah, I, I just think it's really interesting because so many assistants have tried and failed, but Kirby pretty much did it. Like, what Georgia is this year, that's like 2011 Alabama. That, that's what he's created. And Pruitt's on, it's not at the same level because he's recruiting. He had like a two-year uh, – Kirby had a two-year head start on him, but that's what he's doing right now. I mean, it, it's not really pretty, but they're really good on both lines, and Jared Garantano is making fewer mistakes. Like, that that's what he's creating at Tennessee. I don't know if it's ever going to be enough to beat Georgia, but he's getting closer than I ever thought he would. I'll say this, just from a pure recruiting perspective, I know Pruitt's done well, but like Kirby came in and was like number two, number two, number one, number one class. And so like Kirby's done that and still failed. And I'm not saying that much champ or much champ, um, <laughs> all fucking interchangeable at this point. But I'm, not, I'm not sure that Pruitt, can can come in and like Tennessee being quote unquote back. I know we've we've beat that cliche into the ground. Thank you, Joe Tessator. But the them being back is still, I mean, a ten and two program. Like like if Tennessee for the next three years went thirty and six and just lost to two out of Georgia or Georgia, Alabama, and Florida every year, like I think we would consider Tennessee to be like Jeremy Pruitt to be an overwhelming success. At this point, we're not saying it because the only thing that they've done is beat a weak East and then lose to the teams that they should lose to, like 
pretty confident. Like they lost 43-14 to Georgia last year. Like I don't know what the Bama score was, but like those the big games still weren't close. Yeah, but even so, I mean, I, I don't know how closely you watched um, the Georgia Tennessee game last year, but that game was only like 16-7 at halftime or whatever. The floodgates really didn't open until late. And they were driving against Bama down 15 on the goal line before Bama ran a fumble back. But, so. like, that's that's what we talk about, though, with Rippy saying, like, it was an uninspiring game with them against Missouri, but they ended up just sitting on them. Like, that is what teams in the top – perennially the top three do is it all ends up washing out. Like, yeah, this – like, like one little thing happened there, but one little thing has happened here and there for Nick Saban for a decade. And, like, at a point, it's not luck. It's just you having more talent. And so, like – I understand what you're saying, but like when you end up losing those games by three and four possessions, like at every team at some point in a four possession game could have looked like they were in the game, I yes, guess. For sure. But I think my overall point is that Tennessee fans probably don't expect to beat Georgia this weekend, but they can reasonably expect some good things to happen. Have you met Tennessee fans? Unfortunately, yes. But what <laughs> what I'm saying is that it's, you know, it's not going to be all doom and gloom. Like, good things will happen for them in this game, which is more than whatever happened in the Derek Dooley era and for the last part of the Butcher Jones era. Yeah, no, I mean, except for the the stick in the dagger into my heart at the 2016 game. But, yeah, no, no, I, I think that Tennessee is at the point where they will end up beating – I mean, Georgia is probably one of them, could be in six, five days. They, they will beat teams that they are underdogs against just because – dumb shit happens in college football and they are good enough to capitalize on one of those games. I don't know if that's going to be Georgia or Florida or Bama this year, but I I, I definitely see, uh, I'll say this, like I would be, are are you taking A&M or Tennessee over the next five years? Tennessee. Tennessee. Their coach has a reason to try. Yeah. I mean, that's a (laughs) mass, like that is a mass, that, that might be more of an indictment on A&M than anything. And that's a change of tune for me because I've kind of always put Tennessee in the in the category of like the Nebraska where like, yeah, the 90s were cool, but as much as you're in denial, it's never happening again. Now you can just see it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like now it could could happen again. You get the right dynamic quarterback in there. Dare I say it, Arch Manning? I don't know. He's probably not going to Tennessee. But I'd just like to throw that out there to stir the pot. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's it, – it's, Certainly possible, but like at that point, if you're a guy like Will Muschamp, do you just start looking at like whack jobs that'll pay you okay? Because like there is no way out of this that ends well for him with the way everything else around him is going. I don't think, I I mean, this might be crazy. And I know Will Muschamp is an insane person, but what evidence does Will Muschamp have to say, like, I should be winning? Like, what in his football career has pointed to that he has been able to point to and say, I am good at this. I I consistently win at this thing. No, it's it's insane that when you first hire him, it's oh he's a great defensive mind and you know he's a good recruiter. Well, that's true, but also Jeremy Pruitt is probably a better defensive mind and a better recruiter. And same for Kirby Smart, and he has to go against both those guys every single year. Uh, and is you know Tennessee couldn't beat Will Mushroom for the longest time. Now it's just like it's second nature to them. You know, what much that was what nine and zero against Tennessee at Florida and South Carolina. Yeah, and I think he was. He was also he had never won. It might be 
to this. No, no, no. And the same in the Georgia Florida game because he yeah. was he was four and zero as a player and then three and zero coaching against Georgia. Yeah, it, it's insane. I don't understand anything about you know, the Will Muschamp experience at, at South Carolina. And when I say that, it's what did they expect? I mean, South Carolina, even when they're clicking on all cylinders, their ceiling was still second in the East, and that's when they were dropping bags all over the state. And a good recruiting run of in-state players with Clowney and Alshon Jeffrey and Marcus Lattimore. But but at the same time, though, th- like this isn't th- – I do think to an extent this is what they expected because the, the timeline has worked out to where Georgia – fired I don't want to say preemptively because he was certainly at the end of his life but or his Georgia coaching life but they fired Mark Rick (laughs) that man is very healthy Uh he's what is he doing circumcising kids in the Philippines or something (laughs) (laughs) but they they hired they ended up hiring Kirby when they did or firing Rick when they did because Kirby was I think essentially told them if y'all don't hire me next year I'm going to South Carolina and so I think they had the illusions of grandeur to bring in Kirby and I don't think he could have done the exact same thing because I don't I think George is a little bit better of a brand name and easier to recruit to out of out of Atlanta but like I, I think that there is an aspect that like they really didn't get their guy. And this is what happens when you don't get your guy. This is what happens when you get 84% of Kirby smart. Particularly when the, the, the era before you was a complete outlier in the history of your program. They're dog shit historically. They've not been good. I watched some, I, and I, someone, I actually was talking to a South Carolina fan over the weekend at a buddy's house, and I don't remember where exactly this came up or how, but I was watching an SEC story documentary on Spurrier, and I swear, I'm not making this up, I swear on almost anything he said in that doc at some point when he got there, the first million dollar, or maybe the only million dollar seven-figure donor they had was the lady whose name's now on the stadium, Miss Bryce. Like, you're talking about a program that does not have a ton of history in terms of deep pocketbooks and stuff, and then you're asking Will Muschamp, of all people, to recreate that. To y'all's point, not your guy. Like That just doesn't seem like it's going to end well. And then that one nine-win season seems like a huge outlier. Yeah, but, but Monty Jones, he has a bit about like X team would be much happier in X conference. For instance, Nebraska would probably be a lot happier if they were still in the Big 12. Uh, Arkansas would probably be a lot happier if the Southwest Conference was still oh, yeah. set up the way it was. If we still were in 1975. So- South Carolina might be a lot happier if they either stayed in the ACC or remained independent. I mean, just Jordan, like like you said, $1 million donor. That's, I mean, like the other name brand programs in the SEC poop those out. They have too many of them. It's become a problem. <laughs> Yeah, you have yeah, you have guys saying just because you have a million bucks doesn't mean you get to run this program. Exactly. Yeah, and South Carolina's got one, and they put the name on the stadium. That's just, that's absurd to me. Yeah, like, and th- th- we're speaking of, I saw something this weekend. Some da- a Dallas Morning News columnist got like run into it for making fun of uh, SMU student section for not like socially distancing or whatever. Were we robbed of SMU never becoming a major college program and having the most insufferable student section slash fan base of all time? That's immediately where my mind went to when I saw that. You can't imagine the death penalty <laughs> ever being, you know, like, imagine that in the social media era, right? Like teams have done far worse things in the years since, and the death penalty was never, ever discussed. 
when I say far worse, I mean far more egregious. Not that paying players is fine, but like what Ole Miss was doing in the freeze era was just like unreal, and it really makes that old SMU stuff seem minor. But like the death penalty was never a real option. Uh, what was the NCAA thinking? No, I mean they didn't give fucking Penn State the death penalty. Dude. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Taylor or yeah. yeah, I mean like what? We this is a this is a Baylor world football. without a soul, dude. Baylor no, football, Baylor football or basketball, they did not give the death penalty. Oh my god, holy shit! I forgot about Baylor basketball. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah but no, but I, SMU paid like seven players over the course of three years and gave one of them a car. Baylor they, hoops had a guy kill another guy, right? Maybe Craig James did kill those five hookers. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're covering up. Former almost armchair employee Craig James, uh, probably on his business card. Go back and listen to Banjo One for that story. Is that what I felt like? I, I felt like we talked about that at some point. Okay, so. But but so so I think the Muschamp um, the Muschamp point is interesting because. All right, so w- what are we looking at Muschamp's leash here, and what do we think the next? Uh, I think this is a good way to talk about Gus because I think it's very clear that a program like Bama will figure out post-Saban. Um, and then Georgia and Florida, they're going to run those two guys being Mullen and um, Mullen and Kirby into the ground. Or like that, they're going all in for the foreseeable future. They would love for that to be the, the coach for the next 20 plus years. Yeah, it's going to be um, Woody and Bo. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that, that's what they would like. The rest of the SEC, and this is where I think Gus Malzahn comes in um, extremely uh, pertinently. They have the you have the Gus Malzahn, you have the Jeremy Pruitt's a, a little bit weird, but then you have the Ogeron, the Jimbo Fisher, the Muschamp. Um, like like you have this weird nebulous of success plus expectations, but like. I, we should remove O because of last year, but like the other three, the track record is just absolutely not there. Like I, I don't know what we're looking at um, in terms of success at these schools, and like w- what are the expectations here? Because like all of these guys, a a ten and two season is what they hang their hat on. A ten and two season is what these other programs like look down upon. I mean, Nick Saban, I think, was going to kill himself if he had to play in what the outback bowl again yeah but, like that's not what the, the 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 capital one bowl is like a good season for a&m or, or auburn right now i mean so, so i guess what i'm wondering is do any of these coaches specifically gus malzahn like what do they have to do to not get fired or is this like them just going to get churned up by the sec machine Alabama's that's a great point because alabama's program is at the point to where every time they go to a damn sugar bowl everyone bets the opposite way because they just assume they don't want to be there, which is just an insane place to be. Yeah. But to your point, that's the tier of coaches to where in the next half decade, it probably doesn't end well for any of the three. Make the case for Orgeron being at LSU in seven years. Granted, he's recruiting really well, and maybe I mean, you lose so many starters off a national title team. That's not completely fair, but he is a hard guy to work for, and outside of Joe Brady is kind of whiffed on a lot of coordinators – like make the yeah. case for I mean make the case for two years for Gus make the case for five years for Jimbo it doesn't seem like it ends well for any of the three. So uh, I've I've got some thoughts about you know the Alabama Polytechnic Institute since renamed Auburn University. Um, I, I've said for a little bit now that Auburn's really got no reason to historically be so far behind Bama. At uh, number one, um, they both recruit the same state, and Auburn's got easier access to both Georgia and Florida. At number two, their boosters are just as equally as crazy 
Uh, and number three, they've been, I think, I mean, Bama started their program sometime like bef- right before the 1900s. Auburn was right around the same time. So there's no really real built-in advantage for Alabama over Auburn. And you, you can't say you care more when Bama clearly cares way more than you. So that's number one. Number two, um, Pat Dye, coach at Auburn for 12 years, won four SEC titles and was basically forced to resign. And then Terry Bowden won 11 and then nine games right after that. Since then, um, in the 26 years since, Auburn's won two SEC titles, um, which is kind of absurd. I mean, you'd think at least like three or four in that time frame. I think, you know, notice, well, I don't want to say no disrespect, but even Georgia, which was my line for that era, still won like four in that time frame. So, Ribby, I, and I one mean, of Cam Newton won literally on his own. Yeah, I, I mean that almost like the Gene Chizik era almost didn't exist because the dude went three and nine two years after that. <laughs> but Ribby, I'm I'm not sure if I, I mean we follow each other on Twitter, and so you may see me constantly posting about this. But do you know how bad Auburn has been against Georgia in the last decade and a half? So I saw that uh, I saw a stat, and it may have been the you the what you're the one that put it on my feed. Something about them not scoring a second half touchdown. In so here are two things: Georgia <laughs> since two thousand, or I'm sorry, Auburn since two thousand and five. And I know this is past Gus, but uh, or pre Gus, but I mean we're gonna fucking shit on Auburn it's when an, we can, it's baby. An of the whole program. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it is. Uh, but but they are three and thirteen. Since 2005 against Georgia. That's fucking ludicrous. And number two, Gus Malzahn has not scored a second half touchdown in Sanford Stadium. Holy Gus era? Gus Malzahn has not scored a second half touchdown in Sanford Stadium. So let's think about this. He's been there since 13. 13. And that and thir- and so that's post any of the weird scheduling shit because we had to play there at in twelve and thirteen. So two thousand and fourteen, that was when they had just come off. They were number three in the country. They blew a game to A and M, and then they came in and it was Gurley's first game back after the suspension, and we fucking dicked it was them. Thirty four seven. Thirty four seven eviscerated. Two thousand. Was what happens to the? I, 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 I the stat is ridiculous without a shadow of a doubt either way. But what about the bounce off the helmet touchdown? That was 2013. And in, in Auburn. He hasn't scored in Athens. Oh, that game wasn't in Athens. That no, that was that's, right. that's right. That's right. Yeah, so that's, yeah, six, that's, that's, that's insane. So he's played there four. No, four right four 16, 16, there was, it was a dog shit, low scoring, I think 13 to seven game. That was in 2016. They did not get a second half first down. That was yeah. Sean White. Um, White Sean. White Sean. And then 20, uh, 2018 and 2020 has just been literally sitting on them. Like, 20, both games been like 27 to single digits. It was 27-10 in 2018. Yeah, it was 27-10 and, and then 27-6. to 6. And it, it, Gus just loses these games. I'm texting Andrew about this Sunday. Gus is too – he has his job because he's three and four against Alabama. That's pretty much it. Literally. that. But – and the wins have come at the single most advantageous times too. He, yeah. He's, he's a five-off coach. He, so he wins the – he goes to the natty his first year with that ridiculous – Stroke of luck. They're twelve and two. Next yeah, three years, 
five losses, six losses, five losses, four losses, five losses, four losses. He's a five-loss coach with two West crowns. So here's the, que- here's the question that I want to bring back. Is that Ed Ogeron? It might be. It's so early to tell because you have maybe the best team ever followed immediately by COVID season. But the COVID season doesn't make them fucking give up 970 yards to KJ Costello. Uh, I I don't think he, Ed Orgeron, is Gus Malzahn because LSU is not going to tolerate this as long as Auburn's tolerated it. No, no, no. I, I understand that. But I'm talking about like fallout. Like is this a – is is Ed Ogeron a coach who has endeared himself to the fan base because of in the very early in his career he saw big success and then it's like oh this guy actually like fell back to kind of what everyone thought he was. Just a, it's so hard for him to be like I see where you're going. To me, it's just so hard to be Gus to the T because you're talking about two of the most well-timed wins against Alabama ever. Like there's so much luck that has gone into Gus sticking around. I'm just not sure if Ed recreates that. Maybe he does, but like Gus should not still be there. He he may not recreate it, but I do see a scenario just because you're right with the timing, especially with Auburn, Georgia falling back to back. Like if you win those two back to back, like he was able to do in 13 and 17, like that really, really buys you some I mean, very goodwill. It's the greatest month you yeah. really could have as like a as a coach. But but also, I mean, let's look at these numbers. Gus is two and seven against Georgia. He's two and five against LSU. I mean, three and four isn't bad, but it's still a losing record to Alabama. And you know, he's only four and three against State. I would literally cut off my pinky finger to be three and four against Bama. Yeah, but I mean, but he's uh, you hear these records. It's he hasn't – obviously, he made the national championship his first game with, as you said, those strokes of luck. There is no evidence outside of that season that Gus Malzahn's actually a good head football coach. There's not. There's not. And, and I don't think – I don't, I don't even know if it's fair to compare Ed Orgeron to him because the LSU is not going to let Ed Orgeron get to 2-7 and seven against Florida. I mean, right, right, he's, he's what, 2-1 two and one now? 2-2? Two and two? Like, you know, it's they're not going to let it get to uh, two. Okay, and I mean, like, let's say don't that, let it get to two. Let's say we ways. let's say we were talking. I agree with you there, but like, let's say that we were we we were talking about this potential power shift from west to, or from west to east. So maybe maybe state doesn't actually figure out it figure it out. Maybe Arkansas doesn't figure it out. Um, maybe A and M begins whatever regression that they're on right now. So basically, basically, what I'm saying is the SEC West has a potential for a couple easy wins every year. Ogeron could be in a situation where you pick up those easy wins. You might be able to beat up on your non-Florida East division person, as well as the non-conference. And then you kind of have a season that's hinged upon the Bama game. Like you, you, you kind of end up in a situation where it's like, Ooh, they're seven and two going into Bama. Well, if you beat Bama and go 10 and two, then it's looked upon as a good year, even if you don't win the West. But then it's one of those where you go nine and three and you lose to all the teams better than you. That's when things start to really sour. So like maybe it doesn't get to multiple years of four and five losses, but I still do think that like there could be the possibility of like that, them taking that clear, Call it number four spot in the conference between Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And the the other weird thing about Gus is 
is we talk about him being a four and five loss coach. He has the strangest four and five loss seasons of all time because he goes to the SEC title game in what was that, 17, whatever it was, and still managed to lose four games. And then the year after his national national title, they go eight and five. And you look at that and you think, yeah, that's not a great year. But yet they beat Ole Miss in a late October game that was a, if you'll remember, excuse me, it was November. So they play at number four Ole Miss. That's the trend game where he fumbles at the goal line and snaps his ankle or whatever the injury was. We need to do a deep Yet they won a college football playoff play-in game in November, just proceeding to lose four of their last five. So, like, even in an eight and five year, you think, like, I still think of Auburn that year. Well, they were in the mix, which is so bizarre. Yeah, no, no, because they they end up, and I, I need to pull up their beginning of the game uh, schedule, but like I feel like they end up winning a big game every year and then go into this non-conference and SEC lull. And so you look at it and it's like, oh, fuck, Auburn is – seven and oh or Auburn seven and one it's like yeah but like the schedule is set up like that because then they have Alabama and Georgia at the end of the year so like they Gus coasts off of half of a season of hype every single year before he gets snuffed out like it's like the extended Kevin Sumlin thing so what happened Saturday we've beat like not beaten around the bush we've you've eviscerated Auburn as a program and the way Gus is what in the like was Saturday just a microcosm of the whole thing I didn't watch much I was out um, I say I was out. I, there were other games on the television other than that one. I think that it, from a Kirby Smart perspective, I do not think that there could have been a more perfect when when Kirby Smart sits down and he dims the lights and he turns the candle on and he gets the bath going and he gets the hot lotion. He turns on the first half of that football game. It was it, it was like a really well-written personal statement, like an essay. Yes, yes. You know, it, it it was it was a complete microcosm of the entire relationship Auburn and Georgia have had since 2005. Georgia has recruited better. They have I can't believe I'm saying this about Georgia football. They've invested better than Auburn and they prioritize the right things both in recruiting and in culture building. And you just see, I mean, yeah, it was 24-3 at halftime. That game could have easily been 45-10. to 10. Easily. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's Kirby Smart in the second half with a big lead. It, it's not going to happen. But it's like they did what they wanted with Auburn. And in a lot of ways, Auburn and Georgia should be the same program. So, it's Kirby's great. But, uh, I mean, Gus has failed. He's failed with the resources he's had. And I don't mind it as an Alabama grad. But, you know. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. Th- that game was, I mean, not like taking the – historical rivalry aside um and and everything that goes into that like if you if kirby smart if you said how would you want to win any football game he would say i want to go up 24 to 3 at the half on a run heavy scheme and then i want to literally sit on them in the second half i think there were six drives in the second half like like i think that uh, i think each team had the ball two or three times like it, it was the most quintessential Alabama replication product that you could possibly imagine from a former Saban assistant. Yeah. You know what makes the narrative about Kirby not actually – like they say no Saban assistant has recreated it. I've never really bought into that because 
they've recruited at that level, and they're two really stupid play. They're one really stupid way away from a national title, and you know a couple of just absurd mishaps, uh, a fake punt mixed in between from probably close to playing for another one. Like I would argue, it's work. They've just had some bad breaks and bad in-game coaching. For sure, um, it's it, Kirby's. Kirby's done it. He's replicated it. Like it, it's happened. It's there. It just so happens that Saban's also still in Tuscaloosa. That's the only thing keeping Georgia from at least one, if not two, national championships at this point. It's just Saban still being there. Once Saban retires, and if Kirby is still, you know, at or even near this level, I mean, it's you can probably ship at least one trophy to Athens. I'm not. I'm not. I'm honestly not trying to jinx it. That's just what I've seen. And right, uh, Andrew, do you stay awake at night with KP's voice running through your head, just going through that monologue? Because that just not. Treacherous. Yeah, no, there. I mean, brother, (laughs) until the morning after we have won the national championship and that you have not convinced me that the last 27 years has been some computer elaborate ruse to try and make me feel a semblance of happiness, I will not believe that Georgia has won a national championship. No. I can feel KP inside your brain there. It's oh, the, he lives there. It's still, only, it's still only been, what, 11, 12 years since Georgia's won one? Yeah, I mean, right? the 2008 season was ideal. They yeah. had a blackout, they beat Bama really badly, and then <laughs> they went on to win the national championship. Exactly. exactly. The search set is what, the Tech has won one more recently? All right, we're ending this episode. <laughs> we're, we're done. We're done. We're, folks, uh, thank you for tuning in. We end uh, – We Georgia wins a – game by 21 points and i want to end the episode on that door see ya bye